0: Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. After the last of the uranium mining companies left the Navajo Nation in the mid 1980s, they left behind hundreds of sites contaminated with low level radiation that continues to pose threats to residents. Now there's new promise, along with new funding, to begin cleanup of the toxic legacy, and that could have an added economic benefit. A lot of questions and concerns remain. We'll look at the potential for a safer Navajo Nation coming up right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Navajo Nation leaders are pressing members of Congress to reauthorize and expand benefits for Western residents sickened by radiation exposure during the Cold War. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, the Radiation Compensation Exposure Act is set to expire in July.
2: Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez met with several members of Congress in Washington, D.C. last week to advocate for the law known as RECA. It was enacted in 1990 and provides compensation for people called downwinders who've experienced health problems as a result of past nuclear detonations and working in the uranium industry. A bill was introduced last year to renew the benefits, increase payments, and expand the geographical areas covered by the law. Nez says the re- authorization is crucial for calculating how much radiation exposure was endured by former uranium mine, mill, and transportation workers, many of whom are tribal members. While Navajo officials support the law's proposed expansion, they want Congress to go even further to include additional categories of uranium workers and more types of cancers and illnesses and increase individual payments to at least $200,000. The federal government conducted nearly 200 atmospheric nuclear weapons tests between 1940 and 1962. Many residents in parts of Arizona, Utah, Nevada, and other states and tribal lands have developed lung, thyroid, and other forms of cancer, along with leukemia and other long-term conditions. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff.
1: The top leader of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma discussed the tribe's legal fight against drug makers and distributors involving opioid claims. Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. testified Tuesday in a U.S. House subcommittee hearing titled The Opioid Crisis in Tribal Communities. Hoskin told lawmakers for more than two decades, opioids have impacted the tribe's economy, health services, schools, and families. He says hundreds of millions of pills have flooded the reservation, and the tribe is holding pharmaceutical companies accountable for contributing to the opioid crisis. Five years ago, the Cherokee Nation sued drug makers and distributors in 2021 one, the tribe settled with three distributors for $75 million. And earlier this year, a settlement was reached with Johnson & Johnson for $18 million. Claims remain pending against pharmacy chains. Hoskins says settlement money will help increase investments in mental health treatment and substance use disorder.
3: My administration plans to put $15 million of our settlement dollars towards the construction of drug treatment facilities over the next three years, a minimum of $15 million. These treatment centers will help bring about transformational change and provide some measure of justice by bringing healing to our people using funds from the very industry that injured
1: us. Hoskins says the settlements will not be enough to end the opioid crisis. He says the federal government needs to fulfill its trust obligations to tribes and fully fund these types of recovery programs. The hearing was held in the subcommittee on oversight and investigations. Other witnesses were from tribal health organizations and the National Border Patrol Council. The Alaska Federation of Natives is expressing gratitude to U.S. Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski for backing U.S. Supreme Court nominee Federal Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. This week, Murkowski said she will support the confirmation of Brown Jackson after holding a series of meetings with the nominee. The Alaska Federation of Natives Tuesday thanked Murkowski for her commitment to the federal judicial nomination process. Native organizations and tribes have been closely following the confirmation process, stressing the need for the next justice to uphold sovereignty, treaty rights, and federal trust responsibilities. Brown Jackson did express knowledge of tribes during her confirmation hearing. She expected to be confirmed this week. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation,
4: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by Amerind, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Amerind.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.
0: This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The threat of contaminated uranium mining tailings is well documented. More than 500 abandoned uranium mines litter the Navajo Nation. Mining companies extracted some 30 million tons of uranium from those mines up until 1986. They left vast stretches of contaminated waste that continues to spread radioactive uranium into the air, water, and land. And residents say that has contributed to countless life-threatening health problems. Now, corporate legal settlements and a push by state and federal governments is opening a new path toward uranium cleanup, potentially committing billions of dollars that could also help the Navajo economy. Of course, many questions and concerns remain. Today we'll get reminders of the extent of the uranium waste problem and hear about the promise of new jobs and native-owned businesses aimed at making the Navajo Nation a safer place and we'd like to hear from our audience. If you have thoughts about uranium cleanup, please give us a call, join the discussion, 1-800-996-2848, that's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us today from Albuquerque, New Mexico is Marjorie Childress. She is the managing editor for New Mexico In-Depth and author of the article published this week on uranium mining cleanup. The article is part of the series at the Crossroads, which is a collaboration among several partners, including New Mexico in Depth, Indian in Country Today, and the Institute for Nonprofit News. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Marjorie.
5: Hi, thank you, Sean. It's great to be here.
0: Joining us from St. Michaels, Arizona is Daryl Yazzi. He's the Environmental Program Supervisor for the Navajo EPA Superfund Program. He's Dene. Welcome to Native America Calling as well, Daryl.
6: Good morning, sir.
0: Rose Rohr is speaking with us from Albuquerque, New Mexico. She's a research scientist at the Bureau of Business and Economic Research at the University of New Mexico. Rose, welcome to the show.
7: Thanks for having me here today.
0: And joining us from Crown Point, New Mexico, is Dr. Abhishek Royshadhary. He also goes by Roy. He's an assistant professor of environmental science and natural resources at Navajo Technical University. Roy, welcome to Native America Calling.
8: Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Marjorie, I'd like to have you start us off today. Take us back to the source. Can you give us some history on these abandoned uranium mines on the Navajo Nation and other parts of the Southwest? Your article mentioned there are more than 1,000 sites. Is that true?
9: Mm-hmm.
5: Yes, across well across New Mexico, it's true across New Mexico. There's many more across the Southwest, um, and then of course within there's a significant clustering on or near the Navajo Nation in New Mexico, and then across the greater Navajo Nation there's hundreds more.
0: And the mining started when, like in the circa World War Two, mid 1940s, early 1940s. Is that yeah. right?
5: it started it started back then and it was really spurred by um a guaranteed price set by the federal government to purchase uranium ore so in many ways the federal government essentially created the industry they they bought all the uranium ore that could be mined all the uranium that could be mined and it led to just this you know vibrant explosion of uranium mining across the southwest and elsewhere um across the country as well um and then it cranked along until the late 60s. The um, the federal government said, okay, we're going to stop doing this now. But by then, you know, an industry had been created and they were finding other buyers. And then, you know, so it kind of continued on through the 70s. But really by by the late 70s going into the, the early 80s, um, basically the, the industry imploded. I mean, I think it had to do with price, global prices for uranium, and it just, it closed up shop. It closed up shop, you know, in the Southwest and in in New Mexico and across the Navajo Nation and, and elsewhere, these mines were just abandoned. They were just abandoned. So what we have now are a landscape that's littered with radioactive um, uranium contamination, you know, across the region. A significant amount of it is, is on or near the Navajo Nation, and, um you know, since the '80s, a lot of community activism has gone into urging uh, federal authorities to clean to clean up the mines. Uh, we're not talking about mill sites; it's it's mines that we're talking about, um, and to find solutions and you know and go after cleanup money from the corporations that left those mines behind. So you know where we are today, and this is really where my my story goes into kind of the current current kind of questions around cleanup. So there's been several large corporate settlements that ensure more than 200 of the mines on the Navajo Nation will be cleaned up. And, you know, I described this just to get across just how long it's taken to get to this point. But now, as money begins to flow, we're looking at a a next phase, really, of many years designing and executing cleanup plans, which means jobs. And, you know, last year, an influential study here in our state by the Bureau of Business and Economic Research at UNM found for every billion invested in cleanup, approximately 1,000 jobs would be created over a decade. And so, you know, the issue really is who gets those jobs, local people or out-of-state companies. Um, And also, you know, within the conversation about jobs, it's important to consider workers at all levels, those who do cleanup, but also those who are central to designing how a plan for cleanup is developed. And there are concerns uh, that Navajo scientists and community members who have important you know, expertise and perspectives aren't being centered in the planning, um, mm-hmm. while they are the ones who will continue to live in the area.
0: Marjorie, this new money, where does it come from?
5: It comes from mainly um, several large corporations. There are definitely some, some there is some funding coming from um, the federal government, but a really large, large monies coming from um, a couple of corporations. One in particular, there was like a billion dollars flowing into the region. It's called the Tronox Settlement, and it covers um, a certain set of mines, um, which Daryl can tell you much, much more in detail about, like, kind of which mines are getting covered by the Tronox Settlement. Um, but it's corporate money, and you know, I think. You know, people say today, they're like, well, we don't know if there's any more corporate settlements out there. But tend to think that, you know, there's going to continue to be an additional set of abandoned mines out there that haven't been funded yet. And there's going to be continued searching for the resources to clean those up as well. So we actually just entering in a long We're entering a phase, a long phase, probably, of people out there uh, cleaning up mines.
0: Okay, well, let's bring Daryl into the conversation and and Daryl, I want to ask you why has it taken so long for this cleanup to start? I mean, these mines go back some of them eighty years. why finally now
6: that's I think that's the the crux of what we're dealing with that question specifically why why now, after eighty years, We are trying to enforce with the CERCLA regulation, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. In short, it means the polluter pays. This enforcement action would go and identify who did this action, and we would then enforce an action against them to hold them responsible to address the cleanup. Either they do it themselves or they pay for the action. Or we do it, and then we would request reimbursement from, from that, that entity. So knowing that there were a number of parties that did a large amount of mining on Navajo, there were smaller groups that did prospects and so forth throughout Navajo country, Why? why 80 years? Why does it take so long? I wish I had a good answer for you. The, the short answer, and if I listen to the Navajo communities, the impacted communities, my, I myself being a impacted community member as well, you know, I would say it's, it's for lack of a, a better word, racism, because this doesn't exist anywhere else in America where white privileged America has, an existing scenario like this, it, it just doesn't exist like this. You put this in, in the backyard of privileged white America in DC in any of the eastern coastal states, it just doesn't exist like this. And and I, I would challenge anybody to, to say say that it, it it would be existing like this because it doesn't.
0: It simply mm. doesn't. Okay.
6: So here we are. D- um, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Um, well, I was just going to, you know, ask you. To, I mean, you grew up near Monument Valley in a home that sat very close to some of these uranium waste piles. So this is this is an issue that that you take very seriously. It's been part of your family history. I know your father, your grandfather, they both worked in the mine. So. Uh, We're going to have to take a break here in about another minute, but if you can, just tell us a little bit about what was that like growing up in such close proximity to that waste?
6: You know, growing up where I grew up was an absolute joy. And, And I say that because I had no knowledge, nor did I have any understanding that this big sand pile that was a lot like beach sand and and we would play in it like it was beach sand the monsoon summer rains would come and we were up there building sand castles burying ourselves in it and, and nobody said that it was hazardous waste material nobody told us that there could be impacts from it
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so- well folks Uh, We're talking today about uh, uranium mining waste on the Navajo Nation and other parts of the Southwest as well. Some of these mines go back almost 80 years and only now are some of these reclamation and cleanup projects finally getting underway. If you've got a question or a comment, please reach out. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That is the number. Phone lines are open. You're listening to Native America Calling, I'm your host, Sean Spruce, and we're gonna be back right after a short break. Thanks for listening today. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. There's movement toward cleaning up the pervasive problem of uranium mining waste on the Navajo Nation, and the process could create an industry to help provide economic development opportunities over the next decade. That's what we're talking about today. However, there remain a number of concerns, and we wanna hear what you think. Are native businesses that could one day engage in uranium cleanup a good idea? or do you have doubts? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848, one 996 2848 Daryl, before break, you described playing on uranium waste piles as a child, and I understand that your family has suffered some health issues over the years that could stem from being in such close proximity to that waste. Can you talk about that?
6: Absolutely. Uh- that's that's part of the battle that we face in in the work that we do with the enforcement of cercla we identify the impacts of the waste in regards to the environment we also identify the risk that exists to further impacts to human health and also the environment now that's that's where the lines get blurred i feel like we we tend to draw a fuzzy line or put a little cover over where the risk exists. There is there is definite risk. The The research that exists would speak to that. Unfortunately, the research doesn't always get recognized. So you will often hear that there is no risk, but that that can't be true. Come and tell my family that. Come and tell families from church rock. Come and tell families from Cameron, Tuba City, Mexican hat, Shiprock, that there's no risk from living near these events that that have taken so long to address. The research is there, the data is there. I think the government simply needs to add that into the effort to drive forward what needs to be done, what needs to be identified, and what needs to be established, for a true comprehensive approach when we're talking about cleanup, because for Navajo, and we're insisting that part of what needs to happen now is a approach needs to be taken where the fundamental laws of the Diné need to be needs to be identified, because there is a specific manner in which our Diné people look at and acknowledge their lives as one with the environment, never separate. So we, we can't expect to go and address something like this and not identify the people that are mm-hmm. associated with that area or vice versa.
0: Okay. They go hand and 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 how do community i mean you mentioned shiprock you mentioned mexican hat you mentioned monument valley how do uh navajo folks in those communities how do they feel about these uh reclamation efforts these potential projects uh talking about billions of dollars um are what's 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 the 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 temperament what's the tone of, of the community with these issues
6: they're upset they're hurt they're discouraged we we have the nuclear regulatory commission working on reviewing a draft eis comments that were sent to them from the community from navajo nation from you know people within this area and the comments would reflect that the community is upset because we're looking at 80 years of of this existing the way it does. Now, let me throw something in here real quick. When we talk about health impacts, when the mining industry started, there were identified data from other mining events throughout the world. We weren't the only country doing uranium mining. There were other countries doing uranium mining and had identified specific health risks. Lung issues that that were developed from miners working in these mines, these were known. There were safeguards, there were protocols identified, but none of that existed here on Navajo. Mm -hmm. Why is that? So yeah, the the sentiment is people are upset. They're hurt, discouraged. They're untrusting of the government's actions the federal government's actions.
0: Okay. We, we've we got a caller on the line listening in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on KUNM. Uh, caller, you're on the line.
10: Yes, sir. Good afternoon. Um, I have some information. Back in uh, around 94, 95, um, there was a company that was doing some um, reclamation work on Navajo land. Um, matter of fact, it was called Haystack near Grant's, and um, they were doing reclamation on some of those open pit mines out there, and uh, they were stopped because uh, they said the the Navajos told them that uh, they were able to do it themselves because there was uh, money coming in for uh, grants for reclamation, and they never did uh, continue anymore. After uh, they um, shut down that company to uh, say that they could do it themselves, nothing ever came about it anymore. So I mean, you know, there was some um work being done out there in the haystack area. Um I'm just kinda bring that to your attention, you know, I don't know what ever came about that, but there was, you know, reclamation being going on then, but it never continued. Thank you.
0: Okay. Yeah, thank you. And and Daryl, could you comment on that? The caller mentions um open pit mines near Grants, Haystack, um that work just suddenly abruptly stopped. What do you know about? Do you know about that?
6: I I do not, but I do know that the area that he mentions and references is an area that during those times in the nineties were very, there was a lot of uh, contentious debate because of the land status. It's an areas where we call checkerboard areas, um, trust lands, private lands, uh, all of this made it complicated for some responsible parties to work in specific areas. And so to my knowledge and to my understanding, I don't think there had ever been a circle of action enforced in those areas back in the 90s. But I would be more than happy to give my contact information so that this individual can contact me directly I would love to hear more of it. I would love to get an understanding of what actions okay. happened then and okay. try to fill in the gaps.
0: Absolutely. I'll make sure the producers are able to forward your contact info and you can follow up for sure. And so Darrell, I'm interested in just hearing more about what you feel some possible solutions could be. And obviously you mentioned um, local local input, right? Uh, community answers and efforts, but but what else do you see as, as a, a viable solution long-term to dealing with uh, this long-standing waste in, in so many of these communities there on the Navajo Nation?
6: I think the biggest is going to be identifying a responsible party, and then when we look at how these mining events happened here on Navajo Nation, knowing that the federal government was really the only buyer, so... In, in knowing how that was structured, the BIA, through their actions with Navajo Nation, approved these mining events to happen. And so if we look for a responsible party, I think we don't need to look any further than identifying the BIA through the federal government would then be a responsible party, and hence Congress should be looking to pay for all of the cleanup. I've got 523 abandoned uranium mines, 219, that have identified responsible parties and identified funding. So I have a remaining amount, 300-plus mines, without any funding. That's where the government, the federal government, Congress can allocate those funds and say, yes, we can address these. We are the responsible party.
0: Okay, let's bring Rose in into the discussion now. Rose, your work focuses on the economics of this cleanup. Could you give us some numbers? I mean, how many jobs are we talking about? What could be the economic impact there for Navajo Nation uh, with these proposed projects?
7: Well, you ask an interesting question, and uh, we are we were only to look at the economics, and I think it's important that we've heard some conversation about the health impacts as well, which was not addressed in our study at all. We were looking at economic impacts and were funded through the New Mexico legislature through the work of community members and representative Wanda Johnson, working for a long time to get us this economic study. And I just want to mention that because I think it's important to know that the study was funded by the state of New Mexico. Um, As far as looking at numbers of jobs, it's it's complicated. Um, it, It depends on uh, whether we can actually grab onto those jobs. It depends on what types of cleanup solutions are um, considered. And in general, when the EPA looks at—the the, um, federal EPA looks at cleanup solutions, they offer a couple of different solutions and then go with certain types. So when we ran the numbers, we looked at this Tronox settle, settlement and looked at the billion dollars and how that could flow through the economy. And what we saw was it could support about 1,000 well paying jobs for about 10 years. And that's just one settlement for, um, I can't remember the exact number, but it's between 50 and 60 mines, I believe. Um, and yeah. these funds that come through, I just, the, the funding that comes through, a lot of that is leveraged by community action, by people pressuring the government and the companies to um, look at these abandoned mines.
0: Okay, and Rose, I'm sorry, you mentioned 1,000 jobs for 10 years. Could you tell us roughly what those salaries would be for those jobs?
7: Um, I could tell you a little bit about that, but it depends very, very much on what the solutions are. In short, um, the money can be used for different things. Um, The money could be used for taking this waste off-site and processing it somewhere else. This waste could be... um, with on site, which is what most often happens. And sometimes that means that they dig it up and they put in a liner and they put the waste back on and they put a cap on it and they try to like keep it in place, but um, make it so it's not contaminated as much on the site. Um, and then there are other lesser, lesser things, like when there's an exposed site, even just putting fencing around it counts. So you've got a wide variety of potential salaries, but you are looking at salaries from people who build roads to get to some of these sites, looking at salaries for people who put up fences, um, for people who do the engineering assessments and the geological assessments, people who do the monitoring afterwards. So it's a wide variety of um, salaries that you could see and it goes from blue collar to white collar across the board who could get supported. And really how it gets distributed depends on the solution that's chosen.
9: Okay.
0: And also, in addition to these jobs, there's also opportunities for native companies and businesses to provide these types of reclamation services. Are there uh, any currently native businesses in operation that um, could actually do this kind of work? Or are we talking about creating brand new businesses that will specialize in uranium cleanup?
7: Um, so that's that's also an interesting and complicated question, because the answer is there are so many, so many local businesses and um, workers who have the capacity to do this type of work, but they require specific trainings in order to uh, work on a contamin- a uranium site. And so the there are specific OSHA trainings in particular that need to be renewed over a certain period of time. And I think that actually Roy could talk about this a little bit better as well. But there are trainings that a business needs to have in hand. So even someone who's putting up a fence, who knows how to put up a fence, a business that can put up a fence would need to have some proof that they have the capacity to work on these sites. So it's about matching the the trainings and the opportunities at the same time and making sure that those businesses have the resources in place to bid on the contracts when they come through. It's It's a lot of moving pieces and it's about timing it and making sure everyone knows when the opportunities are coming through so they don't go to out-of-state or out-of-region businesses. It's, a In lot the of past, it's timing. We have the resources.
0: Okay. In the past, have any EPA cleanup contracts gone to native-owned firms, or are they mostly out-of-state businesses and workers as well?
7: Um, they have. Definitely they have. And we um, talked to a number of different companies that had those contracts. Things get a little bit complicated after that. Um, There's uh, different rules with EPA cleanups. So the EPA isn't the only one who manages this money. Um, As far as the that that is um, EPA and Navajo Nation EPA money. But there are also within-company cleanups. So a company itself can do its own cleanup, depending on how it's negotiated with the federal government to do the cleanup. So you see local businesses getting certain contracts, but they might not renew, or they might uh, be for one small sliver of the project. And we felt through our study that with better coordination and communication across all the stakeholders, more New Mexico and uh, local and regional and Navajo Nation businesses could get this work. Mm
8: -hmm. And it's about coordination,
7: communication.
0: Okay. And then who decides who gets the contracts? And I'm interested to know, is, is there a model for developing some of these native-owned contractors that could potentially do this work? Um,
7: yeah. Um, hmm. it's, so the EPA process um, started at least, there are certain bids with major contracts. And in the case of this Tronox money, we saw companies like, um, for example, Weston and Tetratech, some very large companies, um, get the first round of contracts. And in this case, um, the contract went with Tetratech. And then Tetratech can subcontract out to smaller businesses for certain work. So it's it's a multi step process. And it's those subcontracts in general that our um, more local businesses are bidding on.
0: Okay, got it. Well, we have a caller comment online who says that problems associated with mineral extraction aren't new and go back to coal mines in Virginia and fracking in places like Wyoming and North Dakota, saying marginalized communities bear much of the brunt of money making companies. Interesting comment here on Native America Calling Today. If you've got a comment of your own or a question, please give us a call. We are talking about uranium waste in Navajo Nation, as well as other tribal communities in the Southwest. Uh, my people, Laguna Pueblo, we have a uranium uh, open pit mine there, Jack Powell mine that dates back to the 1950s. So uh, I can relate to this issue on a personal level as well. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's the number. You can also connect with us online at NativeAmericaCalling.com. You can connect with us on Facebook or reach out through Twitter, one 800 99 native. Lots of different ways to connect with us. So please give us a call. Let us hear your comments. We're really interested in what you think of some of these potential economic development opportunities that uh, are here on the Navajo Nation as well as other tribal communities possibly in the future. So give us a call. Let us know what you think. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
4: This program is supported by StrongHeart's Native Helpline.
0: You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about uranium mining cleanup on the Navajo Nation, and we want to hear what you think. Still time to call 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's bring Roy into our conversation now. And Roy, before break, Rose talked a little bit about the cleanup process for some of this waste. And I think that's really helpful because I don't think that the average person necessarily understands what it takes to clean up an abandoned mind. I think we might think of it like filling a hole with rocks and soil, but I'm thinking it's pretty a lot more complicated than that. So could you give us a little bit more detail on what it takes to actually clean up some of this stuff?
8: Sure. Uh, so one thing, like, you know, we always have to understand that there is no silver bullet for abundant mine cleanup. So every site is unique and we have to first understand the geology, then we have to understand the impact that abundant mine uh, is having uh, on human health and the environmental health. So we are talking about soil, water, air. So for example, for Navajo Nation's abundant uranium mines, uh, uh, right now the water is contaminated the soil is contaminated and even we are detecting radon, which is uh, like, you know, uh, airborne radioactive particles in the, uh like in houses that are very close proximity uh, to this abundant mine. So it's very important to understand the problem and it, it needs to like, you know, and from this, all these various angles and then you have to bring your uh, cleanup like uh, uh, activities at which uh, particular technique can fit in and as Ro was uh, talking about that uh, the training is needed so we are here talking about a radioactive uh, material so not everyone can go there and start just uh, removing the like you know for for example uh, uranium tailings so you have to have specific training like OSHA so it's a 40 hours training and every year you have to like you know keep your license uh renewed by taking a 8 hour refresher so all these things comes into the play and uh how well your uh workers are well equipped to provide the proper ppe uh, personal protective equipment so it's a, it's a huge job and uh and that's why like you know uh institutes like navratna technical university we are trying to train our students so that at mm-hmm. least they can go out and they can be part of this uh uh, this next-level cleanup on Navajo Nation.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned students, because I'd, I'd be interested to know about how many uh, Navajo students you have there at at Navajo Tech that are interested in doing uranium mine cleanup. Is, it, is there a lot of interest there for that kind of type of work and training?
8: Absolutely. So uh, before just giving uh, the context of the student interest, I just want to mention that uh, Navajo Nation is... Uh, huge! It's 27,000 uh, square miles. Uh, the size is equal to state of West Virginia, and we only have two universities. So, Ntu is one of them. So, and we have 96 to 97 percent of our student population who are Native American, and, and majority of them are coming from the local community. So, they're they, they're growing up with this problem, right? So, they know this problem from their heart and from. This, uh, like you know, existing uh, public uh, awareness and education uh, activities that we are having these days, so they know about the problem, so they have the urge to do something for their community. For example, for our environmental science and natural resources program at NTU, uh, all the students they are working on some projects that are related to Navajo Nation's environmental issues, and uh, there are students who are working with me for uh, mine cleanup, So they're learning hands-on experiences how to clean up abundant mines. So yes, there are interests because they know about the problem and they want to make a positive impact for their community.
0: Interesting. Well, we have a caller listening online in Northeast Texas. Jin, you're on Native America Calling.
11: Thank you, Sean. I appreciate this very much. This is something that's very close to my heart because I have many personal friends on the Navajo Nation who have been working in this regard for years, and I've come to understand it a a bit more. And, you know, you have to keep in mind that the Navajo Nation is a large area, and many coal mines have been located there through different sources of ways of coming on with different leaders at the time. And um, it seems like the legislature is always involved in in wanting them to keep the coal mines going, even though sometimes the people themselves don't want to do that. They want to move into uh, other energy sources. And there were always promises made in this process to the leaders of the Navajo nations, and cleanup was always part of that. But what happens is, in one particular area that... I'm most familiar with is that there's no sight of any cleanup happening, although they've been promised and the coal, the coal mines just uh, file bankruptcy and go away. And yet, you know, back, I know one particular time that the Navajo nation was represented, represented by John McCain, a a war hero who I adored. But he talked them into, he wrote the bill setting that mine in place. And the promise was made that they would have water lines going to their homes, which never happened. And that's part of the health issue here is that the coal mines depleted all the water from the aquifers. And there's nobody looking after the legislation has been written, and nobody's watching to see if those promises were fulfilled. It's always up to the people to make demands, and they've been doing this for years now. And they have no water, which is part of the health issue, of course. And the women and the families who took on this dust when the coal miners would come home, it's not always about just the workers getting uh Uh, the risk, you know, cancer and so forth. But there's a lot Mm -hmm. of lung disease there from the dust. It's brought home. The women wash the clothes and they they get sick. And then babies are born uh, in in such poor health and so forth. So, you know, talking to one person from one area and what's happening there is important. But it's just very complicated.
0: Okay. All right, Jen. Thank you so much for those insightful comments. We have another caller, Terracita, listening in Church Rock, New Mexico. Terracita, you're on Native America calling.
9: Uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. As you said, my name is Terracita Kiana, and I come from a community in Church Rock called the Redwater Pond Road Community. And we deal with two uranium mines and a uranium mill. We live right in the middle of it, and I just wanted to let everybody know that the, we are looking at cleanup for one of the mines and what is proposed is that the waste from the milling area is going to be placed on top of the tailing spill um, waste that had happened in 1979. We had one of the biggest spills ever in the United States in 1979 and that reason why a lot of people don't know about that is because it's just been brushed under the rug. It happened in the Indigenous community, and nothing was ever done until the community started looking further into uh, radiation contamination, and that's how we began to be more aware of the situation and realizing that the situation is much larger and that the community has been impacted since the 30s and so this was before I was born and so this community has been dealing with this before I was born and then I'm dealing with it now and my children will be dealing with it um, for a long time as well and I just want people to understand that even though there's words of cleanup and issues like that it's just It's not easy, and for the community, it's even worse because sometimes the community is put into even a hostage situation where it's like, well, you take this deal or nothing, and it just seems really unfair for the community. And so right now, the community is supposed to be talking to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission about how the cleanup will occur and what's going to happen. But yet the community has never really been heard, as in the community has always wanted an off-site removal, maybe to a different location or figuring out something else that can be uh, good for all communities and all parties. But that's not something that anybody is listening to the community about. And it's just like, we're going to move this dirt and it's going to be off of Navajo land and we're going to be putting it over here on our private property, which is just only like half a mile, a mile and a half away from the community. So it's not, the community still has to deal with it. And so that's
6: right, um, right.
9: This is, this is something that I would like people to understand, people to hear out and um, let people know that. Um okay. Any letter of support or anything like that can help the community as well. And we'll we're going to be in um April now and our community will be hosting um the Nuclear regulatory commission uh April 22nd. And okay. So if that's something that the the, the people want to help, I can leave my information with you.
0: Yeah, please share that with our producers, Terci, And thank you so much for those insights. And I'm glad you mentioned the, 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 the spill there in 1979, uh, a holding pond failed in, in, Church Rock and it dumped a hundred million dollars, excuse a hundred million gallons of radioactive waste into the Rio Porco. And, and Roy, I, I want to ask you, you know, that was a, a huge, huge, uh, mess. It uh, didn't get a lot of attention, like Teresita mentioned, but it was just a huge, huge mess. And um, Roy, you know, critics argue that uranium cleanup is not always thorough enough. And in like Teresita mentioned, in some cases, it just means moving it to a new location, like across the road. Uh, what's your response to that?
8: No, it cannot happen, right? Because again, we have to, uh, as Daryl was mentioning, that it's always uh, where this cleanup is taking place, right? So because... In 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 uh, Navajo Nation, they they can just move it across the road and without letting people know that you are uh, living just right across the uranium uh, tellings. And these are radioactive waste. These are not uh, like you know some uh, materials that are uh, that are non toxic. It it will it will emit radiation, and you are coming in contact with those radiation day in day out, and you are having those health issues. So. Definitely the answer is no. So, uh, and that's why I like, you know, as I was mentioning to you, Sean, that students will be uh, like, you know, will be the key here. So, what we have to do, we have to prepare that local workforce. So, you, they, they, right now, they know their rights. Right now, as Daryl was mentioning earlier, that uh, the circle is there. Circle, like, you know, uh, is the law that was passed so that we can take care of these issues and we can go back to the polluters so the polluter will pay so but circular was passed in 1980s and this mining uh, and uh, on Navajo Nation mining started in early 1800s with uh, late copper and other uh, metals and then uranium in early 1900 and coal in 1960 so way before this uh, comprehensive laws were even passed so Sometimes it's really uh, difficult to track back the polluter. But what students can do here is now they know the laws, they know the rights, and with the right kind of like you know training, they can uh, be vocal in this community meeting. So they know exactly where to approach, like uh, the agencies, how to reach out to them, and. Uh, Get involved into the research, publish their research so that uh, people can hear them. So it's more and more uh, public awareness and students need to lead that because they are our uh, like, you know, next generation of workforce. So we can't okay. just move the radioactive waste from like, you know, from one side of the street to other. That's not mm-hmm. solving the problem.
0: No, no, certainly not. Thank you, Roy. We have time for one more caller, I think. Susan, listening on KUNM in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Susan, you've got about a minute there to to make your point. Welcome to America, Calling.
3: Thank you. Um, I wanted to follow up on Terry um, Teresita's comment. There will be a public and nuclear regulatory committee I'm sorry, Nuclear Regulatory Commission meeting at 630 at the Hilton on April 22nd. And I encourage the public to attend that and hear what their plan is for cleanup. And also just the follow on to the Bieber report that Rose was talking about was during the session, this New Mexico legislative session, we were able to pass a bill that is going to uh, provide funding to establish two offices in the New Mexico Environment Department and the Energy and Minerals uh, Resources Department to coordinate uranium mine cleanup in the state. So this report, which was sponsored by Uh, Representative Wanda Johnson has had a long life and a very successful and positive outcome, and I want to thank her. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Susan as well for that comment. Uh, great show today, just lots of information, lots of callers. Uh, folks, for, the, for those of you that we couldn't get to your calls, please remember the conversation continues online, so feel free to make a comment online or comment on Facebook. And uh, let's keep this discussion going because I know there are a lot of thoughts, a lot of questions, and a lot of interesting ideas uh, with regard to these issues, uranium mine cleanup, waste abatement and reclamation. Uh, interesting stuff, and uh, really, again, a fascinating, fascinating conversation. That's about all the time we have for our show today. So before we wrap up, I do wanna thank our guests, Marjorie Childress, Daryl Yazzi, Rose Rohr, and Dr. Abhishek Rosharderi, and a thought-provoking conversation on uranium waste cleanup on the Navajo Nation. Join us again tomorrow for another live show. We're talking about the recent visit by an indigenous delegation from Canada to the Vatican, where Pope Francis issued a formal apology for residential school abuses. That's Thursday on Native America Calling. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening.
3: support by the Native American Disability Law Center. The Native American Disability Law Center advocates for the rights of Native Americans with disabilities, so those rights are enforced, strengthened, and brought into harmony with their communities. There is no charge for this help. More info at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org who support this show.
7: CMS program. Ikayur Minarasi, Ikayur Sarasi diabetic tune, Nunakitinit or see. I let you Contact Lua local Indian healthcare provider. Kai Sakangov Turnu healthcare.gov, Nakakina Kila Lua, 318 2596 Unakai Lunis Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service.